going to say welcome. Um, and to those of you joining us um, from the Indo-Pacific and from Washington and the U.S., thank you for your patience. Uh, I'm Mike Green, the CEO of the U.S. Studies Center, joining you from the land of the Gadigal people in Sydney, Australia. Delighted to have Kurt Campbell, Campbell the Senior Coordinator for Indo-Pacific uh, at the NSC, and his colleague Edgar Kagan and Dr. Mira Rapp-Hooper to tell us about the president's trip. So, Kurt, thanks. Edgar, Mira, thanks for your uh, patience and delighted we can see you, I think, and certainly can hear you. Now we can't hear you. <laughs> still, uh, still no audio, Kurt. We'll try again. Here. Yeah, we're good. Hi, Mike. It's it's Kurt. Can you hear me now? Okay. Very good. Thank you. So, Mike, let's. Uh, first of all, let me just pay my respect to you and the wonderful work that you're doing at the Studies Center, where we follow your progress closely and carefully, and um, you know, frankly, look forward to engaging with you as you go forward. I just want to just take a couple of minutes. I'll set the scene if I can, and then um, have Edgar go through some of the specifics of the visit. So, first of all, Mike, um, since you've served at the White House, you know what it's like when you are called into the meetings with the chief of staff and the senior team and you're told, look, we're facing very difficult circumstances. Um, last week, Edgar, Mir, and I were engaged on the challenges that we're grappling with now with respect to the budget um, uh, impasse with respect uh, to the Republican Congress and approaching hourly by the prospect of a default. I'm relatively confident that we'll be able to get through this like we've gotten through it in the past, but the consequences are real. As you saw, uh, the president uh, was uh, forced to postpone his engagement uh, uh, in uh, PNG and Australia. And having lived through that during the Obama administration, during previous budget um, uh, challenges from uh, a different generation of Republican legislators. I think his decision was that he could not postpone the entire trip. He thought that that would be catastrophic. Mike, you know what it's like. There are obvious concerns and worries. Can the Indo-Pacific count on the United States? Can we be a steady, predictable force in the politics and strategy of the region. And I think our determination was, and the president's was, that look, we're going to go to the G7. We're going to try to resurrect as much as possible with respect to uh, having the Quad in, uh, in Hiroshima with the, uh, with the Australians in the chair, uh, making sure we have a strong bilateral meeting, and then put in place a number of things to try to signal our determination to follow through on all to Hi, Kurt. Uh, just yeah, Papua New Guinea. That uh, Secretary Blinken to go to Papua New Guinea. Um, uh, there, we rolled out a series of our initiatives that are about stepping up our game in the Pacific, both bilaterally with respect to signing the Shiprider Agreement, also the first of its kind security relationship between the United States and P 
PNG. Uh, we also, uh, the president reached out directly, both on the airplane and in advance, Prime Minister Albanese, deepest regrets, um, really sincerest uh, uh, concerns about the consequences of this postponement. Uh, the president invited Prime Minister Albanese to the United States for a state visit, which he uh, accepted in October. The president indicated he had every intention to reschedule the trip. Um, we were able to have a consequential quad meeting, Mike, in Hiroshima, and also a strong bilateral meeting between the president and Prime Minister Albanese. We took steps to make sure that we're on track with all elements of uh, AUKUS, both Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. And the president, the prime minister, signed a blockbuster agreement on climate and uh, the provision of critical minerals, which Edgar Kagan, I think, uh, very successfully negotiated. So um, the president also made clear to the Pacific Island leaders, Tony Blinken carried a letter, the secretary to the Pacific Island leaders, and invited them back to Washington, D.C. for a second uh, summit uh, following the General Assembly here in Washington, D.C., that we will bring all the leaders together um, uh, for a substantial set of interactions. And uh, also, Mike, as you probably saw, the uh, uh, president in his meeting, uh, his trilateral meeting with Prime Minister Kishida and uh, President Yoon of South Korea invited both leaders uh, to Washington, D.C. for what we believe will be a substantial, sustained trilateral engagement among leaders where we seek to build on the substantial progress that has been made in bilateral relations between Japan and South Korea over the course of the last couple of months. So we had a very consequential G7 meeting. I'm going to ask Edward to go, Edgar, to go through some of those deliverables there with respect to economic coercion indebtedness, a degree of cohesion and agreement among G7 partners that I've never uh, witnessed before, plus a larger set of engagement with partners to the G7, enormous enthusiasm about India's participation uh, in uh, Hiroshima, and clearly a desire to deepen engagements with a variety of states that were invited, and obviously on the last day, the historic visit of President uh, Zelensky of Ukraine, which um, frankly um, uh, highlighted how much the Indo-Pacific was committed to sustaining and supporting critical engagement with Ukraine during a very challenging period. So not only were European states strongly in support of the challenging situation that Ukraine finds itself in, but very strong uh, deep public support from uh, uh, Indo-Pacific partners uh, more generally. I will say, Mike, that Prime Minister Kishida uh, managed the um, affair masterfully. Uh, it was a case study of Japan playing a very important diplomatic role. I don't think there is another state that has um, had such an important innovative diplomacy over the last five or seven years, and, and Prime Minister Kishida has demonstrated a very deft touch in Southeast Asia. His outreach to the Global South was important, and clearly this G7 was probably more consequential than any of recent memory. 
I'm going to ask Edgar to go through some of the specifics in both uh, Hiroshima, Papua New Guinea, uh, and also what we hope to do uh, with Australia going forward. Thank you, Mike. Here's Edgar. Hey, uh, thank you very much to Kurt for his typical uh, outstanding laydown. Um, what I would add is that, first of all, I think that this, there are a lot of work that's been gone to this trip, and some of that was despite the fact that the PNG and um, Australia stops were postponed, that we were able to benefit from the outstanding work that had gone into preparing for this. And I think that really showed up in the quad meeting. I think that in terms of the G7, I would say that the things that really stood out, one, and I think everyone probably is aware already, the China language. Um, the fact that, you know, so soon after Macron's trip to China, um, so soon after there was a tremendous amount of discussion about, you know, questions about divisions um, in, in between G7 countries on China. The fact that the G7 came together with, you know, what I think is pretty extraordinary language um, about their shared view of China, the shared view on technology, I think it's very, very important. The other thing is, I think everybody's familiar with the fact that, you know, 10 months ago, the Inflation Reduction Act became a source of friction with a number of U.S. allies and partners. Um, what's really remarkable is that, you know, so in a comparatively short period of time, the um, G7 was able to come together and make clear that the Inflation Reduction Act increasingly is an area of cooperation, an area where we all look the problems um, posed by climate and the opportunities posed by the energy transition in a similar, not identical way. Um, I think that the other things that were really significant was the impact of um, President Zelensky's visit. I think there's no question that that really, really shook things up and the warmth of the welcome, the range of meetings he had, the eloquence of his remarks um, really stood out. And I think it highlighted that despite the concerns that, you know, there would be some sort of Ukraine fatigue, despite concerns that the G7 were increasingly divided on China, in fact, the opposite showed up. Um, that, you know, there's tremendous unity on China. There's a, a growing, a, you know, commonality of views about how to deal with some of the most complex challenges of today, including on climate. And there's still tremendous unity on Ukraine. Uh, I think that in terms of the quad, I'll leave that to Mira um, to talk about. Um, in terms of the bilateral between, meeting between Prime Minister Albanese um, and the president, I mean, it was potentially awkward. I think that Prime Minister Albanese was extremely gracious. President Biden was very clear in his regret. And I think that that helped really break the ice. Um, and, you know, it comes against the backdrop of the fact that they've seen each other a number of times, they've had very good conversations. You know, they, they you know, obviously, Prime Albanese went to Japan for the quad a year ago, immediately after taking office. They've seen each other at other uh, fora. Uh, Prime Minister Albanese came along Prime Minister Sunak to San Diego for the AUKUS launch. So this comes, you know, on the backdrop of a great deal of understanding and a very close relationship. And in time when the U.S.-Australia relationship is extremely strong, that doesn't mean that there, you know, wasn't disappointment. And look, we were disappointed. Um, you know, Kurt talks about these meetings. I mean, you know, our, we obviously were extremely disappointed 
that this was pulled down. I think all of us understand the challenges that the president has to face. Um, and, but, you know, for us, the question was, how do we move forward? And I think that ultimately what you saw was a series of meetings that the meeting with Prime Minister Kishida went extremely well, as you would expect. Um, the meeting with Prime Minister Albanese, I think, went very well. You saw the signing of the climate statement. Uh, but more generally, discussion on a range of issues that just showed how aligned uh, we are in looking at the region. Uh, and then the trilateral meeting, which was brief, but actually quite significant between, um, uh, between Prime Minister Kishida, President Yoon, and President Biden. Uh, and we thought that was very important. Look, it was, the G7 schedule was incredibly packed. There were a lot of other things that the president was trying to do, so it was hard to squeeze in, but we thought it was really essential to do. And then I'll be happy to go into the P&G stock later, um, but I think that the most important takeaway is how appreciative the country, or first of all, how gracious the Pacific leaders were. All, virtually every leader at the Pacific Island Forum meeting um, with uh, Secretary Blinken went out of their way to say, look, we're politicians too, we understand the need to address domestic challenges, and this is one that's more than just domestic. I think that the other thing is that we heard a great deal of appreciation for what the U.S. has done. I think they recognize that in a relatively short period of time, the U.S. has stood up a, a pretty significant effort to reach out to the region, including opening embassies, um, opening a peace, uh, returning a Peace Corps volunteers, to working more closely on climate issues, working on um, IUU fishing. And so I think there was a great deal of appreciation. That doesn't mean that they don't have questions about our staying power. It doesn't mean that they aren't waiting to see like, okay, this time, how serious are you? And I think we have to recognize that. But at the same time, we feel that, you know, we made really significant progress. Um, and in a situation where arguably we were going to face a real setback. So with that, let me just hand it over to Mira. Um, see if there's anything you want to add, then we'll be happy to take questions. Sure. Great to see you, Mike. Um, thanks so much for having us. And uh, we do apologize again about the technical difficulties. I'll say just uh, two minutes worth on the quad, and then we're really looking forward to getting to your questions. Uh, the quad leaders, of course, met on the sidelines of the G7 in Hiroshima. This was their third in-person meeting um, and their fourth summit since uh, President Biden took office in early 2021. Um, and I emphasize that mostly because it's important, I think, to stop and reflect on the fact that what we are already thinking of in many ways part of the regional architecture is in fact still a relatively young organization um, that nonetheless has a ton of momentum behind it. And despite the fact um, that, of course, this summit did not take place in Sydney, uh, where we were so looking forward to the Sydney Opera House sales being lit up uh, with the quad flags, it was a really successful meeting amongst the leaders um, that showcased, I think, their interpersonal relationship and warmth, um, their alignment on strategic issues, um, and their excitement about the practical work the quad is doing. So I'll take each of those three points briefly. First, I think um, from all of our perspectives, those of us who were lucky enough to be in the room, uh, the headline from this meeting was really that the quad leaders get along, like each other, and love being a part of this club. <laughs> there was a lot of, uh, sort of personal exchange, a lot of support for one another's foreign policy initiatives, a lot of commendation from one leader to another about what the, each had achieved since the last time they met. Um, and I thought that was just a really nice, we thought that was a really nice uh, indicator of the fact that everybody supports one another um, and is really happy to be together whenever the quad convenes. And that's not a small thing, right? As Mike knew as well, 
the interpersonal dynamics amongst leaders matters a great deal. And every time the quad leaders get together, uh, these dynamics seem stronger and stronger. And for a relatively young institution, that matters a lot. Um, the second point that I would make is that the leaders had a good exchange on strategic dynamics both in the region and beyond. Um, and it won't surprise you to learn um, that they are extremely aligned. Now, when the quad began two and a half years ago, um, there was a lot of alignment in our leader level views then, but that has only grown sharper and clearer since. And one of the things that is great about having relatively frequent quad interactions is that the four quad leaders don't have to explain their position to one another anymore. They get to start from a common base of information, a common understanding of where one another's greatest national interests, greatest concerns, and greatest opportunities lie, and dive right into what they should be thinking about and how they should align um, in the current environment they're facing. Um, and that occurred very much whether we're talking about the question of uh, China's posture in the region and its sort of next uh, uh, more broadly, or whether we're talking about Russia's war against Ukraine. Um, finally, the final point I'll make is that there was a lot of excitement amongst the leaders themselves about some of the individual very practical initiatives that the Quad put forth at the Hiroshima Summit. The leaders were unequivocally enthused about the progress that the Quad has been able to make on the Indo-Pacific Partnership for Maritime Domain Awareness announced at the Tokyo Summit last year um, because the Quad partners had managed to actually deliver that capability to significant corners of the region in just a year's time. And in many ways, this is the most practical and most all-encompassing project that the Quad has been able to execute in a very short time with each Quad member taking leadership over a different aspect of this maritime domain awareness architecture. And I'm happy to say more about that in Q&A. The leaders also talked about um, their excitement and enthusiasm for the Quad's work to uh, support an open RAN deployment to Palau, which will bring secure connectivity to the Pacific Islands, um, a huge potential step. Uh, their excitement about a new submarine cables consortium, um, which will ensure Quad cooperation to ensure that future submarine cables uh, end up in the hands of companies that are going to be able to provide secure connectivity enthusiasm for an effort to offer infrastructure fellowships to mid-career officials throughout the Indo-Pacific to, to help teach them do things like evaluate contracts and conduct feasibility studies so that our partners in other governments can make smart choices when they enter into infrastructure projects. Um, and of course, a lot of excitement about the continuation of the Quad Fellowship, which is well underway, supporting 100 students to come to the United States this year and planning for a long-term future. President Biden is especially excited about that piece of things. Um, so all in all, it was a briefer meeting um, than expected or planned, but I think a very fruitful one. And as Prime Minister Albanese said upon convening the group, um, really underscored uh, the Quad's longstanding mantra, which is the idea that it is a flexible grouping uh, devoted to getting the work done. And if anything was on display in Hiroshima, it is that these four leaders are flexible uh, and committed to just doing the work. So I'll stop there and look forward to your questions. Um, thank you uh, very much. That was an excellent, um, both uh, debrief, but also um, uh, explanation of the kind of color and dynamics in the room. And just since we don't have nameplates, we heard from Dr. Kurt Campbell, coordinator for the Indo-Pacific at the NSC, um, Edgar Kagan, special assistant to the president, senior director for East Asia and Oceania, and Dr. Mira Rapuper, just now the director for um, Indo-Pacific strategy at the NSC. And, you know, it's a historical fact that 
having been on or watched presidential trips stage for a long time, it's a fact that the press never, ever says that was a great job. The president's crushing it. There's always something. And, you know, for you guys, the criticism was uh, about, obviously, the shortened trip, um, which was hard to miss. And you took some heat from the usual corners. What I think people might have missed is um, how much alignment there was. Usually these presidential trips, even good ones, there are stories about friction. Maybe there was an agreement reached, but man, was there a lot of broken crockery. Or later, it's interpreted differently by the different parties. I, I've seen very, very little, basically none of those stories. There really was in the G7, the Quad, uh, the trilateral and Pacific Island leaders, uh, to, to all that we could see, absolutely the alignment of views that you described. So I'll tell you, the questions I tend to get are, um, what comes next? What what do these different statements, agreements, initiatives actually mean? And I want to I want to ask you about a couple. Um, the first one is the G7 statement countering coercion, economic coercion. Um, uh, as Edgar said, um, for Macron and others to be aligned on that was pretty powerful. But what exactly does it mean? What what comes next? Is this a uh, first step in a in a in a G7 or multilateral? process on countering coercion. Can you tell us what to expect on that one? Look, it's a really good question, Mike. Um, I think that the, uh, uh, sorry, sorry can you hear up. us? Okay, yeah. I think, first of all, look, this is, as you said, this is hard. Um, getting the G7 aligned on this, particularly given the history um, and the range of views was not easy. I think that what it really means is that there's not an agreement that economic coercion is something that is a real problem that needs a common solution. I think that one of the challenges of dealing with economic coercion is that in general, there's always a first mover disadvantage in the sense that you know everyone's worried, like if I do something that nobody else will. And so I think the fact that we were able to get the statement is actually pretty powerful in and of itself. I think that the honest answer is that this is still a work in progress. What we have is a set of principles and look, getting a set of principles was not easy. I think that we are, what we also have is to recognize that every situation is going to be different. But having this alignment I think does two really important things. One is it allows for further discussion about what our different tools are. And one of the things that you very quickly realize, like we've been working on this, is that every country has a different set of legal and policy tools that they could use. Um, and that it is a hard thing to come up with a truly like integrated response because I mean, I think in every country, people kind of feel like, gee, our set of tools aren't exactly right for this problem. But by working together and bringing everybody's tools together and putting them all on the table, it actually allows for a much more effective response. I think the, the second thing, and I think that this is really the power of doing this, is there's a deterrent value. Um, and look, I don't want to oversell it. It is very hard to know, and it's very hard to know what the calculus is. But the prospect of united action by the major economies in the world and knowing that a number of other key countries share a lot of the same concerns. I mean, I think it's not a surprise. Australia, um, India, uh, the ROK, 
all in the Indo-Pacific all have concerns about economic coercion. There are many countries that aren't part of the G7 that have been victims of economic coercion. So the fact that you have this platform, I think, has a real deterrent effect. Um, it's hard to quantify. And look, obviously, our fervent hope is that there will not be a need to test this out. Um, I think that we are realistic and we are working with our partners, including some of the ones that aren't in the G7 that I've named, to figure out how we can try and get our tools aligned, how we can figure out what each country can do in cases where this might be an issue. But if we're really successful, this won't be an issue because the mere fact that there's this much immunity will be a deterrence in and of itself. Mirrors, anything? Nothing to add. So, um it is then like you know historic G7 agreements in past, an agreement on principle um, that's unprecedented, um, and the plan is now um, going to have to be constructed and and the specifics. Um, the other one that really got attention here in Australia, as you'd expect, was uh, President Biden and Prime Minister Albanese's agreement um, to create what some people here are calling a third pillar in the U.S.-Australia alliance on climate critical minerals. We did a survey at the U.S. Study Center late last year. And when we asked Americans and Australians, what do you most want to see out of the alliance? Uh, the answer was more cooperation on climate change. 77% uh, of Australians, 70% of Americans. And if they were in their 20s, it was close to 100% of both countries. So, you know, at least in principle, the president and the prime minister have delivered uh, a plan to do that. Um, the questions people are asking about it in particular, though, are what does this mean for the Inflation Reduction Act? Is there a mechanism to ensure that Australian companies under this agreement, Australian entities, consumers are not penalized by some of the things in the IRA that, you know, emphasized by American have other provisions that would disadvantage, you know, allies, partners, um, international corporations and NGOs? Is, is there, um, is there a, a, a sort of action plan working group of things to follow to make sure this is implemented in a way to address those concerns? Look, the short answer is yes. Um, there is, there's already been a fair amount of work going, and, and it goes in different streams. Um, I would start off with the premise that Australia is uniquely advantaged by the Inflation Reduction Act because it's an FTA partner. Like, you know, if you look at the language, there's very special treatment for FTA partners, um, and so that immediately gives Australia a major leg up. Um, and I mean, frankly, something that is very resented by non-FTA partners, which I shall not name. Um, also, Australia is in a very unique position in terms of the IRA, which is, in addition to an FTA partner, it's an FTA uh, partner that has a very, very significant mining industry, um, arguably the you know, strongest, most capable, technologically sophisticated mining companies in the world are all Australian um, or you know, co-located uh, in Australia, but essentially you know, Australian in, in their complexion. Um, and also Australia has resources. Australia has a very wide range of uh, mineral resources. So all those things make Australia a natural partner. Uh, so I think that, you know, I'm very honestly, I think that there's been a lot of focus on, oh, IRA is going to somehow be bad. And the truth is, IRA does three really significant things. One is it explicitly carves out IRA partners. I'm sorry, um, FTA partners. Um, the second, it advantages them. The second is it turbocharges, which is probably the wrong metaphor, uh, demand for 
um, electric vehicles and accelerates energy transition. And what we can see is that since the IRA has been announced, it has accelerated major investments in batteries, in uh, electric vehicles, in solar, I mean, a wide variety of things in the United States, but also globally. Because what countries can see is that there is going to be a market here, and also that the, the scale and scope of the technological transition and development that is being accelerated by this is going to spill over into other countries. So, you know, more demand for EVs in the U.S. is also going to translate to much more production, bringing down costs, et cetera, which is going to accelerate the deployment of EVs in other places. And the third point is that there is a tremendous amount of linkage already between Australia and the United States in areas having to do with technology, in areas having to do with clean energy. And so this plays to those strengths. So I think for us, what we see is tremendous potential. Um, and I think that Australian companies, from what we can tell, are all very, very eager to take part in this. Um, and the government has been very supportive. The only point I'd add to that, Edgar, and there was a beautiful lay down, um, is that um, we also recently announced that the president will seek to designate Australia as a domestic source under the Defense Production Act for critical minerals. Um, which is a really yep. important provision, um, which basically means that the U.S. government can mobilize U.S. government resources uh, to uh, purchase um, and for the production of critical minerals in Australia. Um, so to the point that Edgar already made, that the IRA, um, you know, protect, protects FTA partners um, and advantages them, this is actually going a step further and signaling that in this particular regard, Australia is to be treated as though it was a source of domestic critical minerals, um, which really is a significant potential elevation, even though there is a process uh, left to bring that to bear. Um, excellent. Let me, um, I won't keep you too much over the hour. We started late, but I know you have, um, well, if I remember my days at the NSC. We'll give you some time. On, we owe you. You're coming up on 7 or 8 p.m., which means you're only halfway through your day. <laughs> um, but uh, a few more from me and from the audience, if I could. And people can use the Q&A function to jump in the queue. We'll see if we can get to them all. Um, I was really struck. I think a lot of people were struck by the president's comparatively optimistic tone about um, uh, relations with China in the press conference um, when he anticipated a, a thaw or an improvement. Um, Beijing didn't reciprocate with equally optimistic language, of course, but uh, I think that struck a lot of people. Um, Damien Kaye from the New York Times uh, asked a question related to that. Is the, is the change in tone, you know, things like using de-risking instead of decoupling the president's, um, you know, optimistic or relatively optimistic note in his press conference about relations with China? Uh, where does this come from? Is it, uh, Damien asks, is it... Uh, out of humility or weakness? Uh, is it out of listening to allies? Is it where the president wanted to take this discourse and it's about the right time? How would you explain the the the, the note we heard from the president about, about China on this trip? Because it was all about alliances, partnerships, and alignment, but there was clearly this note to Beijing as well. Look, I think that it is, fits into the basic mantra that the administration has had and that very much the president views, which is the invest, align, compete. Um, and what we've seen in some ways, this conversation actually highlights it. There have been a number of things which 
our investment in our own domestic sources of strength, the IRA being obviously one of them. Another major initiative and line of effort is aligning with our allies and partners. And I think that you've seen, it's been two and a half years now, uh, a, a really sustained effort to try and strengthen our relationships in every possible place with allies um, and just you know, looking at what's already happened this year the, between Japan, Prime Minister Kishida's visit, the president's visit to Japan, the bilateral they had now, it's extraordinary progress in the alliance. If you look at the uh, Korean state visit, President Yoon's state visit here and the Washington Declaration, that's again, strengthening of an absolutely critical alliance um, and one that uh, is also extremely important in terms of technology. Um, I think that if you look at the Philippines, President Marcos's visit, again, a very, very significant, you know, step towards restoring, I think, an extremely important alliance with an extremely important partner. If you look at the G7 statement, I mean, you can see work with allies to align views in areas that historically have been very hard. I mean, yes, you know, G7, you know, at times has been criticized as being a talk shop, but in that talk, there's a lot of disagreement. The fact that there was so much agreement on China, in our view, is very much the, the result of sustained efforts in sharing our vision, listening, um, because I think the president is very focused on the fact that we cannot strengthen our relations with allies and partners if we just try and jam our views down their throat. That's not who he is. And I think that he has been very sensitive to the importance of listening, making sure we incorporate that. That doesn't mean we agree with everything we hear. But I think that you can see those things come together in this. In terms of the attitudes on China, I mean, I think the president has long been very clear that he does not want conflict. He wants to have a more positive relationship with China, that he recognizes there is going to be very serious competition. And that's obviously the third part of the align, invest, align, compete mantra. But the competition doesn't need to be conflict. It doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to lead to hostility. That, you know, we both have strong interests but that, and important interests, but that, that doesn't mean that we can't find ways in which we're able to at least sit down together, work together um, where possible. So I think that's very consistent. And I think that, you know, the, the combination of the G7 itself and then the, the sort of second part where there were additional partners invited, combined with things like the Quad and the Trilateral, all of those things strengthen the U.S. position in terms of being able to engage effectively and support our view that we need to be able to compete effectively with China and Europe. The only thing I'll add, Edgar, might give the piece that you signaled that, which is in addition to the policy, which I heard very clearly just laid out, the invest align compete um, piece of it. I think the tone that the president struck also exists as an important tool of alliance management. We all know, those of us who follow the Indo-Pacific closely, um, that our allies and partners, whether in the region or outside of it, don't want to feel like they're being forced to choose between to competing great powers. They don't want to feel like they're being sort of trampled by a headlong clash. And um, the president is very clear and confident in his diagnosis of the competition with China and believes that that competition does not preclude constructive diplomacy. So he chose to signal that to the rest of the world as well, because for so many allies and partners, having that bit of breathing space where they feel like they too can engage China on constructive terms if they need to or want to is really important. Um, and it actually helps 
to reinforce the degree of alignment and unity that you saw in back-to-back -back events, whether that was at the G7 or the Quad or the trilateral meeting. So when those alignments are strong, um, it's even easier to create that bit of breathing space that allows line, uh, allies and partners um, to pursue their best judgment of how to calibrate themselves for second try. I think and, you make look. Mirror's exactly right. The key point is that we are in the, the president believes we're in a stronger position, and that this is a this is a, a way in which we can further strengthen our position by showing that we want to engage. This helps us with allies and partners, but it's also very much in our interest to engage wherever we can, um, if we're able to get meaningful results and make sure that we have lines of communication so that we're able to manage uh, competition in a way that doesn't turn into conflict or hostility. I was going to say, at some point, a, a political scientist or a journalist somewhere is going to do a, a chart uh, that shows the tempo of uh, your administration's engagement, state visits, agreements, and it's going to be much higher than previous administrations throughout the year, which I think also explains why the alignment um, was, um, was so successful despite shortening the trip. Um, there's obviously also a lot more urgency to the region and the geopolitics than there was for previous administrations. Um, uh, but kudos to you and um, uh, leads to a question from Dimitri Selastopolo from the Financial Times, who, um, who gives you a hats off for all the work uh, done, but wants to know, this sounds a little bit like you're doing your performance review, wants to know what, know what initiatives, what aspects of the Indo-Pacific strategy are proving elusive. Presumably you can't all retire now. So what, what's on the to-do list um, in the strategy? Uh, not what are the upcoming summits and things, but what are some of the things that you've you've been um, looking to achieve that were in the Indo-Pacific strategy that are still works in progress? Look, that's a, a, obviously a tough question to answer. What I would say is the first thing is what we saw, I think, on this trip is to some degree, and I, I hate to sort of abuse the George Schultz gardening metaphor, but we're seeing the we're seeing some of the very initial harvest of the investment of the planting, the pruning, the weeding, the the tending that has been done in the last two and a half years. I mean, there's no question that you know the basic message I would argue hasn't really changed. But the difference is that it's now been delivered very consistently, very clearly. It's been delivered in a respectful way. We have listened. We've made clear that we're trying very hard and certainly very willing to take partners and allies' concerns into account. And that has helped tremendously. I mean, I, I, you know, look, if you look at what we were trying to do at um, Carvest Bay, it wasn't that different. But the difference was that there wasn't a level of trust that the president has developed and the administration has developed in the last two years. Um, and certainly you know, two and a half years of taking office, two years since Carvest Bay. So I think that is one key thing, is that we are in a good position of having built a lot of confidence and trust. On the other hand, we're not going to stop working at that. So I would say the first priority is to continue showing that we are very serious about putting allies and partners first, that we are very serious about updating alliances, modernizing partnerships, and that is something that we just can't rest on our laurels. We have got to keep working at this. And I think the second is looking for more ways in which we can bring a wider range of partners in. I think that you know, you've seen the effort to bring, you know, to, to encourage Europe to play more part in the Pacific. You've seen the effort, sadly, that was not really driven by us 
but uh, to get the Indo-Pacific to play more of a part in Europe in the support that's been given um, to Ukraine. But I think that looking for how we can bring additional partners is really critical. And look, a good example of that is, you know, the president was supposed to go to PNG, but and, and Secretary Blinken went instead. But he was going to be bookended by Prime Minister Modi, who was in PNG, in fact, um, you know, the, the day that um, Secretary Blinken was there, that we were there with him. Um, and then that all the Pacific leaders are going to Seoul for a summit with President Yun. And I would argue that that is exactly the example, the kinds of things that we want to keep working on. How do we bring new partners to play a larger role in the region? I don't want to suggest India has had this FIPIC uh, construct um, for, uh, since 2014, so this is not completely new. But I think that they are stepping up their efforts because they see that there is a need in the Pacific. I think this is new for Korea. Um, and I think that that's the kind of example of what we'd be looking for. And then, obviously, following through. Like, one of the things that was, I think, very powerful in Secretary Blinken's remarks um, to the Pacific leaders was going through a checklist of all the things that we've promised in the past year. And I think all of you know that our capacity to promise things is often greater than our capacity to deliver on them. Um, and so the fact that he was able to go through and say, we said we would do this and we have done X, Y, and Z. We said we've done. So you know, examples are opening embassies. Like we committed a, a year ago, a little bit less than a year ago, year ago the vice president um, announced to the Pacific Islands Forum that we would open three embassies in the region. We've actually opened two. We were very close on the third and working on a fourth. We've since announced Vanuatu. We said that we were going to open uh, a USAID mission in uh, the region, which will be in Fiji. We are on track to do that in the coming months. We said that we would get Peace Corps back to the region. We have done that in a number of countries and on track to get more. And so I think things like that are very significant. And that will be one of the things that we're going to try and make sure that we do going forward is continue to deliver on the things that we've promised. And at the same time, make clear that this is a collaborative effort. This is not the United States telling countries, you need to do this or else. This is the U.S. working with partners, working with allies to try and address what they see as challenges. Not that we're always going to agree, but that it is in our interest to try and find as many common things to work on as possible. So sorry for going on. Final item I would just flag, Mike, because I know you're going to flag it if I don't. Uh, the region is obviously uh, looking to us for continued economic leadership. I think we are um, able to provide that in a number of regards, but we have a couple of important opportunities um, that are coming to fruition later this year, so that remains very much on our to-do list. We're really looking forward to hosting APAC in San Francisco in 2023, which is going to be a great opportunity um, and, and a really substantive agenda. And of course, um, we're very much in the thick of IPAP negotiations and want to return um, IPAP components that are really significant um, and meaningful to our partners. Um, so those remain high on our list of things to check off before the calendar year. Is and look, I would add to that that, you know, as an example, the walking and chewing gum at the same time is there was an IPAP round. Um, that in Detroit that's been very successful. Um, now, you know, it hasn't been, it hasn't closed everything. There's still work to be done. But I think that for those, and, and there are many, um, who are skeptical of IPAP, I think that the fact that it continues to move forward and continue to make fairly significant progress, I think, is a sign that the administration is committed to following through on what is said. Uh, thank you. I think you gave uh, Dimitri something to work with there. Um, 
let me ask one more question, then we'll let you go. We're going over a little, going over a little uh, because we started late. Um, and by the way, I think your point about India is and, and Japan is really, really important. And and I hope people picked up on that. I mean, the the, the alignment we saw in the G7 had um, a lot to do with your diplomatic efforts, but it was Japan's leadership, as you noted, uh, and 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 probably would not have been as successful without Kishida uh, and the Japanese government um, sort of showing the way. And the India piece is critical, of course. Modi uh, came, Modi uh, came to Australia, went to the went to PNG. Uh, I thought that the Zelensky visit to the G7 was a sign of uh, solidarity, but the really interesting part was the engagement with Modi and, and India taking what seems to be a different, uh, uh, more proactive role uh, on Ukraine, not where the US or Europe or Japan are, but but not where India was. So uh, those those key partners are, are, are stepping up and doing interesting things. Um, the question I wanted to ask is from uh, someone on the line, uh, John Skill from Southern Cross Venture Partners. You know, now that you've got um, the Quad and the U.S. Japan Korea trilateral moving forward, and and the and the Washington Declaration with President Yoon and all these pieces in place, um, it raises the obvious question: How do countries like Korea, um, or Canada, or Indonesia, plug into these groupings like the Quad or AUKUS? Um, is this going to remain a kind of a la carte thing? How are you thinking about the complicated geometry of all these different initiatives and groupings? Yeah, I'm happy to take first crack at that um, and then talk to Edgar. Um, so in the case of both the Quad and AUKUS, the original membership of that structure remains the original membership for the time being. So the Quad has no plans to expand its membership. Um, AUKUS has no plans to expand its membership in Pillar 1, which of course is the submarine program. Um, but both of these partnerships are, over time, going to provide an increasing set of opportunities for other like-minded partners to engage with um, a broad suite of work that each is doing. In the case of the Quad, there are a few different ways to think about that. Um, I mentioned in uh, my opening remarks the Indo-Pacific Partnership for Maritime Domain Awareness which is already bringing uh, via radio frequency data and improved maritime domain awareness capability to different parts of the region. Now that already has the quad interacting on a regular basis with countries in the Pacific Islands, in Southeast Asia, and in the Indian Ocean region. So the quad is actively partnering with countries who are not quad members. Um, over time, we can see that becoming uh, an expanded set of countries if, for example, uh, there was another like-minded partner like Korea or like Canada that had something to bring to the table on a submarine cable project um, or on a global health effort. But our understanding for the time being is that those uh, outside partners, the collaboration with additional partners, will be on the basis of uh, practical outcomes and work that's ongoing rather than expanding the membership itself. Uh, AUKUS, of course, uh, has the potential to add additional partners through its Pillar 2 efforts, um, which will be focused on expanding partnership in a number of areas of advanced capability. Um, and similarly, uh, the thought to bringing partners in will mostly uh, be based on who is the best fit for the technological area in question, who can contribute the most, bring the most to the table, um, and who is a great contributor to the overall effort. So I think what these partnerships have in common is that while the central mission may be designed around a relatively small number of fixture members, 
the broader mission um, has much wider opportunities that's for collaboration. And one could see a world in which that work continues to expand um, and the partners with whom the original membership is collaborating grows by extension. There's a lot of potential there. Yes, and look, I think that the key thing also to think about is that the idea wasn't really about you know, being exclusive. The idea was about bringing countries together to address tangible challenges. And it was, what are the countries that want to do this the most? Um, I think it is a very positive thing that the, you know, more countries want to do things with the clock. Uh, and look, two, two and a half years in, or two and a quarter years in, it's pretty significant. That, you know, and as Mira said, this is the fourth meeting, third in person, and there's been personnel change. I mean, there have been change. There's a different Japanese prime minister than were in the first two meetings, a different Australian prime minister than were in the first two meetings, and yet their successors have proven equally enthusiastic about the clock. Uh, and, you know, look, what I was really impressed by was that there was plenty of reasons to think that the quad in Hiroshima was going to actually be a little awkward because, you know, essentially there had been big plans, a lot of work had been done, and suddenly we were trying to jam it all into a much shorter period of time. As Mira said, what was really striking was the leaders know each other so well, they're so comfortable with each other, that actually they don't really need talking points. They don't look at paper. They just talk. Um, and there's a real exchange, there's a real dialogue. And so what was striking was, this was essentially, it was about an hour. Um, I would argue that this was a more productive meeting by far than the very first, certainly the very first um, uh, uh, you know, virtual meeting, but even the first in-person meeting, which was a good meeting, I mean, don't get me wrong, but this is the benefit of building on what we've done. So I think that the idea has been very much like, let's do things. And what is great is suddenly we have a growing number of partners and allies who want to join in doing things. You know, that is a good problem to have. And I think that we're very confident that we can find ways to take advantage of it to support, you know, to deliver public goods for the region, but also support all of our interests. It's a really important point in, in, in diplomacy, especially in summits, there's a difference between quality and quantity and a thing people call speed of trust. If you trust your counterparts and get right to the point, uh, the length of the meeting is not actually as important uh, as uh, the outside world might think. So um, look, thanks for taking time at the end of a busy day or maybe the middle of a busy day. Um, thank Kurt for his opening briefings. I hope you get some rest and get over your jet lag, but I know the White House and I know you probably won't, but good luck, keep on keeping on. I really appreciate the time you spent with us, Edgar, Mira, and our best to Kurt. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. Great to see you, Mike. Thanks, everybody.